Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Students at Reynolds High School will be learning from home once again this week. Dozens of students have had to isolate so far for potential exposure on school buses in Portland and Lake Oswego. But all in all, students are back in classrooms and teachers are back in person. How's it all going a few weeks in? I'm Andrew Thien and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. Before we start, a quick thank you to our sponsor, Pacific Source, for supporting the show. Up next, reporters Aimee Green and Fedor Zarhin break down how things are going a few weeks into the school year. We talked about buses, quarantines, how districts are notifying parents about exposure or not, and much more. Here's our conversation. Aimee Green, Fedora Zarhin, thanks for coming on the show and for keeping us all informed about the latest COVID news. Always happy to be here. My pleasure, Andrew. Aimee, let's start with you. We talked just a few weeks ago about the return to in-person learning and the angst and the uncertainty and the excitement that brought. How are things going so far? I think the answer to that is a question mark. We really <laughs> don't know. Um, many school districts across Oregon have been in session for about a week or two. And I felt like before school started that we would have a better handle on how it's going. Um, Oregon's done fairly well compared to other states um, for most of the pandemic. More recently, not so great. We've been having a big surge. The surge is um, maybe slowed down a bit, but still it's, um, we're in the midst of it. The numbers are high and, um, I just didn't know what would happen with schools. And I still don't really know what's happening with schools. The state puts out a weekly outbreak report. And I know some districts were hoping that that would show how many cases were, um, appearing in their districts. Um, I know a lot of parents in the community were hoping that it would give them an idea. But um, having talked to the Oregon Health Authority about their dashboard, it is behind by 10 days to two weeks, at least in reporting cases, maybe three weeks, maybe more. And it's missing a lot of cases. OHA says contact tracers just don't have time to track down everybody who tests positive and see if their cases are linked to schools, if they work at a school, or if they're a student, and that we could be missing quite a number. I did just on my own notice, um, Portland Public Schools in about the first two weeks of school has reported 127 known cases of COVID-19. And the outbreak report for that same time period shows 11 cases. So less than 10% of Portland Public Schools cases are showing up on that state dashboard. Well, that is uh, certainly problematic when we have this built-in lag time, uh, and we're going to be wondering, I guess, for a while how things are going. 
Unfortunately, I mean, we can try to look elsewhere. We can try to look at the state's pediatric report that they put out weekly that shows us case numbers of children who've tested positive. And, you know, the numbers haven't looked great for about the past four weeks. Um, Mm -hmm. They're down slightly from mid-August. But then school started up um, around the beginning of September, and they have kind of held even or ticked up slightly. we're still seeing more than double the number of weekly kids um, coming down with COVID than we were at any other point in the pandemic, even the winter surge. Um, And we also can look to dashboards that districts put out um, that they are COVID-19 case dashboards that some districts, many districts that I talk to do put on their district websites, but they vary quite a bit in how useful they are and how much information they put out. I found uh, 16 districts are either, out of 20 districts that I surveyed in Oregon, are either planning to put out dashboards or they already have put out dashboards. Um, It is surprising that there's four districts, (laughs) um, including big ones like Salem, Kaiser, and Hillsborough, that aren't putting out dashboards that show the number of cases within their schools. And we also have... um, There's other ways that schools can let people within their school communities know about cases, which is they can send direct notifications to parents. Um, But I'm hearing from parents that they're unhappy about that as well, because uh, oftentimes school districts won't tell parents if their child has been in the same classroom with a COVID-19 case, um, if their child is three feet and one inch away from that child. Three feet's really the threshold for notifying a parent that they were a close contact, that their child was a close contact to a COVID case. Yeah, we'll parse that um, three-foot rule a little bit more later on in the show, but maybe let's pivot to Fedor. The biggest news, I guess, that we have so far in the return to school, Fedor, is one of the state's largest high schools, Reynolds, um, had a pretty significant decision this this past week. What do we know about about what exactly is going on at Reynolds and how many people have COVID there and why the school decided to go to full remote learning? So the decision to uh, go back to remote learning kind of makes sense, right? So there's been 901 people quarantined according to the district's uh, dashboard. Current enrollment, well, April enrollment was 2,680, so that would come out to about one in three students if all 901 individuals quarantined are students. Now, the district isn't really saying how many of them are staff, how many are students, and uh, there are four people who are isolating because they've either tested positive for COVID or presumed positives, but we also don't know if those are students or staff. There's also a lot of information we don't actually know. Like One thing I'm trying to figure out right now is if all 901 individuals were actually identified as close contacts or if there was a much broader, uh, wider net cast to get anyone who may have been a close contact. So the the high school right now, um, you know, the second largest in the state is moving to remote learning for all of next week. And then Thursday and Fridays and today and tomorrow, there's no school period. So, you know, we're, we're in this time where everybody's learning, everybody's trying to figure out how exactly this is going to play out over the over the school year 
And I think it'll be interesting to see how things play out because, you know, within the first few weeks of school, an entire high school is essentially shut down to in-person learning. Like, is this going to be the reality going forward? How is contact tracing going to work? Because, you know, I would imagine contact tracing in a school, in a huge school, isn't that easy, right? So who's been within three feet for what amount of time? Uh, then there's other settings like school buses, for example, where, uh, you know, might be, might also be challenging to do contract tracing and the standard for who is a close contact is broader than in a classroom. But again, we're really not getting that much information as of yet from the district. I think it's really important to get a, that information, particularly to see like what are the challenges they're facing that have forced the school into distance learning for a week that yeah. say other districts can learn from. To put a finer point on it, Fedor, we don't know at this point as of Friday when we're talking whether this is um, a precaution due to community spread because schools are obviously not <laughs> they don't exist in an island. They are part of a community um, or whether this is spread within a school. We have no idea, right? So, yeah, I, d I don't know that. I mean, it, it it appears it could be community spread. Like the school said uh, in its announcement, there's a lot of community spread. And uh, this is a set, that's essentially why this is happening. I mean, t to me, again, like I think my reporting points to sort of the flip side here of the efforts to uh, prevent the spread of COVID because throughout the pandemic, any policies, decisions uh, usually involved some like a balancing act, right? You know, if you shut down businesses, you make that decision with taking into account the impact on businesses, right? So there's always some sort of balance and I'm trying to figure out exactly where the balance is with the case of schools right and then the other component is the key here to deciding how many kids are gonna miss school because they have to be quarantined is again is contact tracing so how do you contact trace when there's multiple thousands or hundreds of children right children in a building uh that might not be that um that straightforward so either the so, standards have to change either the standards could change for who needs the quarantine or there needs to be uh more consistent things like seating charts for example uh, so that health officials know exactly who sat where and when as opposed to sort of free-for-alls I mean, one question I've kind of had as I read all this coverage, and it's kind of popped up in your coverage as well, is why is there no state guidance on how to handle issues like this? It seems like it's kind of a, a on a case by case basis of whether there's a state guidance. It seems there's no uniformity. It, it's up to the districts in a lot of respects, but for issues like vaccines, it's not. Yeah, that's right. Um, state officials have said there's two mandates that they're handing down to K through 12 schools. One, that everyone in schools has to wear masks. Um, and two, that staff have to be vaccinated. 
There's many, many other decisions, COVID precautions that schools could take that the state is leaving up to the districts. And they say that's just kind of Oregon tradition that the state is um, hands off in many respects in the in the little decisions, the everyday decisions that school districts make and how to run their schools. I think the problem that you point out that is when you do that, there is great, vast inconsistency among school districts about what kind of COVID precautions and procedures they have. One issue that's come up is that the federal government is supplying the state with money to pay for testing so that students, um, all students can get tested once a week in um, surveillance or screening testing. So they may not have any symptoms. They may be completely asymptomatic, but once a week they'll get tested. Um, so when you leave it up to school districts decide what decide whether they want to enroll in that program, you see that a lot of them don't or haven't. About 40 out of the more than 200 school districts in Oregon have said, yeah, we want to do weekly surveillance screening of our students and we're enrolling in the program. Um, that leaves most districts not. And we know that especially in children, um, COVID is asymptomatic. So children um, are, they could be spreading it um, without even knowing they're having it, going to the classroom, um, bringing it back home. Um, just one other area that I find that um, there's a lot of variability among districts um, because they're left to decide for themselves, when do you quarantine? I'm seeing some schools where they'll have a few cases and they'll quarantine a few other kids two cases, quarantine two kids. And I wonder, really, are those, maybe those are those two kids fit the definition of within three feet for more than 15 minutes. Um, and so um, they should be sent home for two weeks under state guidelines. But then you see other schools like Reynolds and, and um, Glad, the Gladstone Elementary uh, School that is temporarily closed, you see them um, quarantining many, many more. And I, and I wonder if their definition of exposure is different. And Fedora, your reporting showed that one of the question marks, right, is the school districts like, well, Reynolds High School, for example, doesn't really have a lot of uh, visibility into knowing what percentage of their students are vaccinated, right? Yes, that's right. So going forward, the district is going to be asking parents to volunteer that information so that they so that students might be able to opt out of having to quarantine. Can we talk a little bit more about your reporting on school buses and kind of the whole situation with Dunaway uh, Elementary Fedora? Um, What exactly was that situation? What does it tell us about kind of the the myriad juggling acts that districts are, are dealing with? Yeah, so one of the parents who's Dunaway Elementary School student is quarantining, kind of summed it up as buses are sort of the Achilles heel of this whole system because on buses, the standard for who's a close contact is six feet, 15 minutes or more uh, over 24 hours compared to three feet in classrooms, right? So some parents are concerned, like, why is my kid going to have to quarantine when perhaps the risk is no higher in a bus than it is in a classroom. Then the other component here is some district, some schools have taken time to start putting in, uh, applying and using seating charts, right? Which makes, again, like I've said previously, contact tracing a challenge. Uh, the Dunaway uh, 
on a bus route on Dunaway Elementary School, apparently the cameras that were in the bus to that that the principal that the school is going to review to see who sat next to an infected student they were at an angle where they couldn't see the where the kids were sitting so as a result everybody on the bus was quarantined kind of out of a out of an abundance of caution so the district said that it's very unlikely that everyone uh, was actually a close contact and was actually exposed, this is what needed to be done out of an abundance of caution. And like uh, other schools, like say in Lake Oswego, uh, the plan is to put in, to, to start using seating charts consistently. Of course, there's that caveat that at the beginning of the school year, seating charts would might need to change every day because parents at the beginning will decide to drive their kids to school as opposed to uh, sending them to school on a bus uh, sort of routines transportation routes might uh, might change but with contact tracing that's kind of uh, what it appears you have to do to not have to just do this blanket quarantining another issue appears that there isn't actually that much research on who are on the risk of contracting COVID on a bus. So the state here uh, is just essentially relying on CDC guidelines and the CDC and research has shown that in classrooms spread is uh, that three feet is the appropriate cutoff, but with buses, it's not as clear. Now there was research from July that tracked for some number of months, uh, nearly 300 kids uh, who consistently rode buses in a private school in Virginia. And they found that even with kids sitting two and a half feet away from each other, uh, there was not a single case that they found of uh, a student who was on the bus and had COVID giving it to another student. There were 37 students who had COVID in that time over the research period. Now, this was before the Delta variant took over. So when I talked to the lead author, she was you know, she was careful to say, you know, we don't know if this research would apply, if the findings would apply right now. Um, but if they did, then, yeah, you know, there, there it could be that more kids are being quarantined than necessarily have to. But, of course, that's entirely separate from the issue of, you know, making sure the cameras are are positioned in a way to where you can see the kids. You know, make sure they're seating charts and that kids actually stick to them, right? So there's just the logistical operational stuff that schools are working out on the fly. And then there's the, is six feet appropriate for, uh, for buses? Okay, uh, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and talk more with Amy Green and Fedor Zarin. So, Aimee, what have you heard from your sources, parents, people reaching out to you in the last couple of weeks? Uh, or how are things going? I'm hearing that it was a stressful decision that they had to make in sending their kids back to school. They don't want their kids to get COVID. Kids are um, by far less impacted by COVID physically than adults and the elderly, but still there's long COVID and there are very small um, number of kids who have serious um, effects from COVID. But 
they want their kids to get an education. They want their kids to socialize. Um, Those are two very important things. And um, I I think many, many parents, most parents said, yes, uh, we're sending our kids back and we're glad our kids are back. Now that their kids are in school, they love the energy of school. Um, There's lots of catch up the that their children need to do. And um, yeah, it's really nice to see their friends and see a teacher um, face-to-face in the same room. At the same time, I'm hearing there's lots of anxiety out there. uh, And I don't think that's unreasonable. Um, Parents are worried about their children. They're worried about their school year. And maybe not even just catching COVID, but the disruptions when um, school has to shut down for a week or two, or maybe not even school. Maybe it's just a few kids and they're sent home. Do they get home? work packets? Do they have good online resources? Do they have a camera into the classroom so their education can continue? So there's lots of worries out there. Yeah. Do we know answers to those questions of, you know, when a school does like Reynolds goes to distance learning unexpectedly? Um, are schools prepared for that? And do we know what happens for kids who are quarantining or are they getting those resources? Well, I've read from Fedora's coverage that Reynolds is, um, doing comprehensive distance learning. So meaning that it would be online learning with a live teacher. Correct me if I'm wrong there, Fedor. Yeah, no, that's that's right. At Dunaway, uh, there definitely was some trouble for the kids who were quarantined. Essentially, the Multnomah Education Service District, the folks who provide most of the health services, uh, essentially were telling kids. And so, so was the, the school was essentially telling parents that they hadn't received guidance yet from the district on how to continue education. And then a teacher at the school wrote to kids saying that uh, there were some IT issues. Regardless, the the bottom line was some parents, you know, parents felt like there was just essentially nothing for them to do and no plan. Um, School teachers kind of banded together and put together these packets uh, homework packets, just not the same as uh, remote learning, but apparently that also took some amount of work. I mean, you know, teachers, they, uh, they, they are devoted, devoted people. So they made that happen within uh, about two days of uh, yeah. the kids being quarantined. Yeah, I want to add if um, you, you have scores of kids out like at Dunaway, um, it should be easier and more feasible to do that for classroom teachers. But if your classroom teacher and one or two of your kids are out, you really might have to scramble to try to get, put together a homework packet or some yeah. online learning program for that child. And and that's tough. It's tough for the teacher and it's tough for the kid to be sitting at home for two weeks. So, I mean, I it's kind of a trope, but I guess, is this a good start? How would we grade the school, the start of school so far? I mean, if we're, if we're, giving a, giving a grade. We've seen here and there cases of schools temporarily closing. Um, I wouldn't say that we've seen it widespread. I wouldn't say that we would necessarily know. So I can definitely um, give a grade for um, transparency, um, which <laughs> I, you know, I would say it's a failing grade for transparency. Um, as far as yeah, how are how how are things going in reality? I I just I really don't know. It's so hard to see, right? It's just kind of a 
we're we're in a black box and we're just kind of waiting to see you know what happens i guess mm-hmm. yeah and we'll know more um you know is the hopefully we'll know more we'll see the cases i mean the evidence is the cases pediatric covid cases um and quarantines and shutdowns i mean those are um hard facts that um that hopefully uh we will be able to see if they are happening what else are you two wanting to know right now or you know hoping to hoping to hear from either education officials or or state health of health officials well so speaking of hard facts i mean that you mentioned the state apparently doesn't actually know how many schools have closed to uh, in-person learning and doesn't necessarily know how many kids are quarantined, which is what the state's epidemiologist uh, said. And so that for me raises questions about how the state is able to uh, assess how things are working at a local level, right? So that's one of the things that I'd like to know, like what is the actual broad impact here? Like, How do we assess if this is working beyond the number of pediatric cases? And meanwhile, you know, depending on what district you're in, I guess you, you may not know if your child is in the same classroom as as a kid that tests positive, right? If they're not close enough. I mean, that's just kind of the reality of the situation. Yeah. Wear a good mask. Have your kid wear a good mask. If your kid's 12 or older, have them vaccinated, um, get vaccinated. And, you know, the other thing we don't know, I think, is how long this is going to drag on, how long this pandemic's going to drag on. It feels like we're really, really in it for the long haul. And so we need to find a way to live with this and live in a healthy way with this. So, you know, I'm all for taking the precautions and I'm all for transparency. So we, as the public, can gauge what's going on and um, assess how we proceed from there in our lives. Do we continue to send our kids to school or not? Um, Do we demand certain protocols um, be implemented that aren't being implemented? There's a lot of unknown and we need to um, work through it. Well, thank you both for working through it with me today and taking time to talk about it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. I shared links to Fedora and Aimee's latest stories about COVID and schools in the episode notes. If you like this show, give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find the program. And tell a friend. Help spread the word. The best way to support our journalism is through a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time.